0: Hello, folks. Never thought I'd need to start the podcast this way, but the times have changed quite dramatically since our last episode. On February 24th, Russia senselessly invaded its neighbor country, Ukraine. It's a tragic event, and Ukraine and its people need our help right now more than ever. To learn more about ways to help, please go to den.dev Ukraine. That is den.dev Ukraine. Today, I chat with a good friend, mentor, and an all-around great person, Isaac Hepworth. Isaac is the person you should go to if you want to learn more about what it means to be achieving excellence in the product management space. We chat about the role of a problem solver, what it means to be a PM across different companies and titles, and what one can do to better prepare for an industry that changes by the day. Enjoy the show. Good morning, afternoon, and night, folks. Uh, Another episode of The Work Item. And we are on a roll with great guests. And today I have a good friend, mentor, leader, Isaac Hepworth. Welcome, Isaac.
1: Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: Isaac, so I know we work together and just hearing you talk, one of the things that comes through very clearly is that you are a problem solver and you like seeing yourself as a problem solver. Why is that? Tell me more about that. Tell me more about that aspect of your career, being a problem solver.
1: Dang, that is a that is a great opening and really gets to the heart of things. So I think um it's 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 an idea that I've developed recently because I, I've had a, a generalist career of sorts. You know, I started, you know, way back 30 30, 30, yeah, 30 years ago or so. I was, you know, writing code for a living. I was a software engineer. Um, and um you know, then about 15 years uh, ago, I switched to, to product. Um, since then, I've worked in product, in partnerships, um, in strategy. I've led engineering teams. I've led PM teams. Um, I've worked in operations. Um, and and really look, looking back at, at kind of the common thread through all of these things, um, there were a few things um, which which I think ties it all together um, and, and made it clear for me what what I was about. And there were really three things which, you know, I feel good at and really enjoy doing. Um, and number one is solving tough problems. Um, and, you know, I, I think a product manager feels like the best fit for me because, you know, I think as a product manager, its I mean, for me, it, it's all about solving problems. Um, you know, there could be organizational problems, there could be technical problems, product problems, process, operational, go-to-market, um, cultural problems. Like, any number of problems can kind of fit into this this bucket, but it's something I, I really, really enjoy doing. Um, and so, you know, as a PM, um, I actually, you know, encourage PMs and, and folks who, you know, folks who've worked with me in the past and, you know, been you know, worked on product teams to think of themselves primarily as problem managers rather than product managers. Um, and starting there and using that as a starting point and, you know, saying, hey, Here's, you know, let's let's look at the problem space that we're in. Um, and the the example I give there is, you know, if you're the product manager for the retractable tape measure, you know, you've got your retractable tape measure, you're gonna make it longer and lighter and more flexible, and it's gonna retract quicker, and the belt to clip it's like the belt clip is gonna be that much snappier and more satisfying, and you know, it's gonna get better and better as a retractable tape measure. But if you're the prod if you're the problem manager for measuring things, You're going to come up with LiDAR and the Sona range finder and, you know, AR apps on your phone for measuring things. And, you know, you're going to to explore that problem space that much more expansively by thinking of yourself as a problem manager rather than product manager. And so, you know, I started to think of myself in those terms as as being someone who who solves problems. Um, And, you know, as I said, it could be organizational, it could be product, it could be tech. And actually, in most product positions, the product the problems tend to be multifaceted like that. And so the success of a given product probably does depend on technology and product and process and operations and go-to-market, probably organizational challenges, probably cultural challenges, um, a lot of different aspects which go into shipping products. Um, but solving problems is something I really love to do.
0: How does one develop this mentality of being a, well, let's call it a problem manager, as you called it out, because especially folks listening to this, some of them are early in career or mid-career when, you know, oftentimes when you first start off, you're given a task and say, your responsibility is this little button in this application here, right? Like that's your feature, good luck, run with it. So you're kind of given the tape measure and say, now you manage this tape measure and what happens to it. How does one develop this mindset of looking outside the box?
1: I think I think it is, it's the qu- it's. I mean, it sounds sounds easy, it's obviously harder in practice, but but stepping outside of the box, taking a step back and looking at, you know, what are the outcomes that we're trying to drive? What are the problems we're trying to solve? How how are the the problems joined up to what we're building? And, you know, I had a, there was a PM team, which I I worked with at at Google, um, and I was trying to I was trying to figure out there was a, a number of PMs reporting to me and I was trying to figure out how to divide up responsibilities. There were we had a set of products, they were kind of had some overlapping features, they certainly had a lot of overlapping code and technology in, in these these areas the PMs were working on. But it's it turned out that there was a very natural division of responsibilities amongst PMs and the team. If we took the problem space and divided up that problem space, and even though, yes, we may use machine learning technology to solve this part and this part. That doesn't mean they're the same thing, and you you need to manage these these aspects separately as approaches to the problem. It also helps to to take that step back and look at the problem space as a whole, and look at today's product as a secondary concern. How does that overlay on the problem space? What coverage do we have? You know, are there areas of the problem space that are completely unaddressed today by today's product? Um, you know, are there Areas of the problem space where you know today's product is too thin. We don't have sufficient depth of, of attention in today's product. And so, separating product from problem, you know, they may look very, very similar. But you know, having that that picture in your mind of there's a problem domain and there's a product domain, and certainly there's a mapping between them. Um, and it may look like a nice isomorphic map, and It may look like they're the same thing in different shapes. Very rarely are they the same thing in different shapes. And so you'll you'll find that looking at the problem domain, when you map the product into it, you will find areas where, you know, maybe you're even going outside the lines. Maybe today's product has features which don't help it solve the problem it's supposed to. Uh, maybe those features should be cut or deprioritized. Maybe you find areas of the problem which are completely unaddressed by today's product. That could be a new feature area, could be a new product line, certainly a new opportunity. And it could be where you know your coverage of the problem domain is is just too thin uh, to create the value that you want to. Um, so I think that it's it's a perspectival shift where you know taking a step back and recognizing that there are two things going on here. There's there's a product that we have um, and a or the product that we want to build. And that's different from the problem domain. They're related and there's a mapping between the two, but it's not one-to-one.
0: It's something that is also interesting to see when talking to, say, startup's founder
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: or somebody that is uh, working in the domain, they have an exciting idea, they have the technology for it, right? Like right now, everything is ML, AI, blockchain, Web3, and folks just attach themselves to technology and think like this is a cool piece of technology, right? I built this complex thing, and now I got to go find the market instead of what you're describing is working backwards, figuring out what does this actually solve right. before building
1: it. Right. Absolutely. And I think and it comes to, to customer empathy as well and, and kind of, you know, how we think about customers and users and, and designing for users. And, you know, user, user-centered design is, is not the process of going and interviewing users, what do you want, and then going and building that thing. It's the process of having an empathetic or ethnographic approach to understanding what are the problems what are the outcomes you know and and I would you know I've, I've used these you know these techniques before in, in the past as a, as a pm talking to customers not asking them what features do they want but what problems are you trying to solve tell me about your workflow tell me about which things about it annoy you tell me which things feel useless or duplicative tell me which things feel too frictionful tell me where you feel like the effort required to use the, the product is, is too much for the value you're getting from it but really getting at you know what's you know, not just a list of hey, wouldn't it be great to have these ten features in the product, but an understanding and, and the empathy for the the, pro- the problems they're trying to solve and the outcomes they're trying to drive. And I think it's a it's a it's a vital success factor. I think for PMs to to approach customers in that way and really understand what is it they care about and, and what is it they don't care about. And I think you can you can even internalize this and begin to talk about you know goal setting or you know even okrs if you have them around but formulating them in terms of your the success of your own customers and so rather than saying you know how many i, I don't know how many comments in a document can we get customers to create tomorrow if i'm the you know if i'm the the pm for the commenting system There not a customer in the world who wakes up in the morning wanting to make more comments in the document they have things to do they have outcomes they want to achieve and it's a matter of how can we help them get there and comments is a part of that but you know making sure that you're thinking of your own goals in terms of your customer success solving their problems i feel is a big part of PM.
0: it's also the point about measuring the right things when you're talking to customers because i remember having a conversation very early in my career when Uh, I was working on an email client, which shall remain unnamed, but it was basically the conversation around, well, you know, the number of emails being sent is down, so we have to, like, make sure that it goes up, like, but isn't this a little bit backwards, right? Like, you're optimizing not for the problem, but for I want people to use my product
1: instead of what are they actually doing? Absolutely. And we had you know we had an exact analog of this. You know, I, I worked at Google um way back in the day, 2000, 2006 um, was when I first joined Google. And I worked worked on the mobile team back then. And this was, you know, pre-iPhone, pre-Android. This was putting little J2 ME apps on mobile phones and you know, and, and mobile search was a you know a separate product for Google out then. They had desktop search and they had mobile search and we would you know, measure, um, and pride ourselves on mobile search traffic and the number of queries per day going up. Um, and then, you know, it, it occurred to, to one of us, it might even have been me, but someone on the team was like, you know, what we could really do to make queries per day go up? We could reduce search quality. We could make it harder to find stuff and people would need to search more to find what they're looking for. And that really introduced me to this idea of these, these kind of confounding metrics or these, these measurements, which were, Cross purposes with customer success because yeah, absolutely, the perfect search product is the one where I go, it knows what I'm looking for and serves it up for me even before I type a query. Um, but certainly, yes, you can get more mobile search volume by making you know mobile search quality lower, and obviously that was uh, that was in nobody's interests. Um, but it was it was important to point out that this metric of queries per day. Yes, it was great as a as a as a pride thing. It gave us a sense of the you know the the way the industry was moving. But in terms of the what we did to the product, it wasn't an incredibly instructive metric. If that makes sense.
0: So you're a prolific product manager, and based on this conversation, you paint this picture that product managers have to be aware and doing quite a few things. Right, you have to be comfortable talking to customers. You have to be comfortable developing that empathy. But you also should have the product sense. You should understand how to build products. Do you see the value? And this is something you called out earlier about being a generalist, where you kind of you're spread pretty thin across different areas because I mean, in product life, there's always stuff to do. Or is there's more value in being a specialist where somebody that says, I am good at this particular part of the discipline and just this. Where do
1: you see that? gosh you know i've struggled this with this then my, my whole career um and and i have i have been a generalist and I, I you know i i spent after i after that time at google back, you know 2006 um 2010 i, I left and joined twitter um and twitter was a hundred or so people at the time um, and you know, I was five years there and I started, started doing product. I worked in partnerships. I worked in brand strategy, media strategy and operations, um, partner engineering, I had a whole bunch of different teams. Um, and I, I ended up becoming known as a person who could make things happen and, and get things done at Twitter. And, and back in those days, um, you know, there were, there were a lot of, Really interesting things happening on Twitter, and celebrities popping up, and and things happening with politicians. I got a chance to to meet Obama and go to the White House. And but as part through all of this, you know, my business cards at Twitter ended up saying, you know, Isaac Hepworth, and my title was Unusual Projects, and it literally said that on a business card. And I, I kind of loved it at the time, I mean, a super cool business card. Um, but there, then there was a time at, at Twitter where I lamented to my boss that like. I don't really have so much of a a career here as just a collection of initiatives, right? What what does my resume look like after five years at Twitter? It looks like, hey, you've done a whole bunch of super cool things, but what does that add up to? And so I think, you know, being known as a generalist, um, it helped me at Twitter. I got involved in a whole whole bunch of stuff, um, things which I, I wouldn't otherwise have been able to do. Um, but certainly, there's there's a tension there with um, you know with folks who are very specialists in a particular particular area, and folks who are you know growth specialists or engagement specialists or um, you know consumer product or industrial design specialists or whatever it be. I, I've never really developed any of those specialisms, and I still think of myself as a generalist. And it's still you know, and I'm uh, you know as I, as I look for work now, I'm in between jobs and I'm looking for work, and it's it's still. Still something of, of a struggle to explain what it is I do. Um, and so, you know, it comes back to these, you know, these three things I talked about at the beginning, where number one was solving problems. Number two was making teams work better. Um, and number three is coaching and mentoring folks who are earlier in career. And these are three things that I can speak to, which I think I do really well. I certainly really enjoy doing them. Um, and these tend to be things which I refer to when. I'm interviewing or I'm in the market looking for work and people are asking me what I do. I say, well, here are the three things I feel really good at and I really enjoy doing. Um, And I'm looking for a job which allows me to to exercise these, these three muscular groups, as it were.
0: Do you see also a difference as to how the product role is different at startups versus big companies? Because you have experience working at very big organizations. Like Google is arguably one of the biggest. Microsoft, the same way. But you've also worked at a startup, so you have the perspective. How do they differ across the two?
1: Gosh, that's it's a really good question. Um, I mean, I'll talk. I'll talk to my my recent experience. You know, I, I left Microsoft last summer, and I, I went to a startup. And so, I you know, I went from what a hundred eighty thousand person company or something to an eighteen person company. It's, it's a bunch of orders of magnitude. Um, and I think you know the the biggest thing for me was. Um, you know, the the set of problems that are in front of me and and the internal friction surrounding those problems. So I I think at at large companies um, that you tend to find, or my experience has been that there tends to be more internal frictions. You may have, you know, a hundred things you want to get done, Um, you know, 56 of them, you're going to need to persuade these four VPs to fund them, you know, another 30 um, are stuck waiting for a reply from someone. And then, you know, and very quickly, you get down to, okay, well, you know, here are these, here are the four things which I can actually make forward progress on right now, right? Um, and I went to a, the startup I went to in the summer. You know, I, I found myself with 100 things to do. Any one of them I could just pick up and go do, right? And so the the, it's, the, the problem is inverted at that point. And suddenly it's not, it's not a question of, you know, what's the minority of things I can actually make traction on? It's kind of of the 100 things I might do this week, I've got time to do five. Um, which five should they be? And so, you know, the problem becomes one of, prioritization sequencing dependency mapping you know effort versus impact you know trying to figure out there's so much stuff you could do and there's way more new capacities for and none of it is held back by internal friction none of it requires multiple levels of approvals or you know socialization of this deck or this proposal or whatever it may be all of it can just be picked up and you can run with and it was it's it's very you know it was a it was a change of pace and it, it was I found it very refreshing um, and actually you know coming back to Twitter it reminded me about you know joining Twitter at a hundred or so people um, it was a company where it felt like no one had ever built a Twitter before you know it was brand new to the world and the company and the product had so much running room there was so there was a vast expanse of nothingness the company could just run in and and the, the problem wasn't kind of what should we do next or you know where's the value it's like of all the Things we might possibly do next. What's the, you know, what's the handful that we can actually accomplish in the near term? Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's it's just a very different approach. I think you know, big companies um, have the benefit of, um, you know, there's lots more organizational problems to solve. That's something I really enjoy. Um, there's teams which can be made to work better, and you can get um, a huge amount of impact through making teams more effective and more efficient. Um, I take huge pleasure in that. You know, large companies are well resourced. They tend to have a much bigger impact, um, you know, on on the universe as a whole. Um, and so, you know, it's there's a there's a balance there. And, and like you said, you know, I've, I've worked at, at small startups and worked at you know what, six figure, you know, hundred thousand plus companies, Google, Microsoft, and so on. Um, and it's actually interesting. I mean, the thing about Microsoft, I think, the thing about Microsoft which which stands out as a company. Um, Different from say a Google, which is a comparable size, at least the same order of magnitude, is the age of the two companies. You know, Microsoft is literally twice the age of Google. It's forty six to Google's twenty three, more or less. And um, and Google grew up on the internet. You know, it, it absolutely grew up on the internet from from day one, um, and Microsoft didn't. And that shows up everywhere, and it's really fascinating. And um, to, to Microsoft has this richness of history and people who've seen a lot and been through multiple versions of the company, been through multiple CEOs and multiple business models, multiple product lines, multiple go-to markets. You know, it was a, uh, a company which, you know, ships software on, on floppy disk and, um, you know, and is now, you know, doing great in cloud. Um, Google is is very internet focused, has been from day one, um, and Microsoft wasn't. I think Microsoft was the, was the first, you know, tech company that I'd worked for that, that wasn't born in the internet age. And it was fascinating from that perspective to show how that that shapes the, the culture, the leadership, the approach. Um, I, I felt like I learned a lot there. It's a
0: underrated aspect of, I think, working in product is that how much the culture of the
1: company shapes the product role. Right. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I, I mean, I think that's true as well. And I think Microsoft Again, you know, being being an outlier, you know, I've, I've been at Google, I've been at Stripe, I've been at Twitter, I've been at you know, Silicon Valley startups. And you know, Microsoft stood out as, as having a, a different take on the PM role and, and kind of, you know, and, you know, I think your program manager was, was my official title, um, you know, even though I started myself product manager. Um, but it was it's very, very interesting. And, and product management itself does. I mean, it's one of those roles which does take on very, very different shape. Um, you know, I well, I. I was the first PM that, that Stripe hired back in the day in 2015, and I joined Stripe at 200 people. There were 100 plus engineers at Stripe when I joined, but um, you know, I was the first, you know, actual full-time PM that they'd that, that hired, um, and it was kind of fascinating. You go to a company like that that's five years into its history, already rather successful as a company. What can you add as a PM? And so, you know, my my first you know, few weeks at Stripe was. A, helping Stripe to understand what product management was and what I was there to do, but also trying to intuit what was it that Stripe needed from product management? You know, it had a product that was doing very well. Um, It had a a great reputation in the industry. Um, It was doing great on all its core metrics. It had incredibly visionary founders. What should I, as a PM, be focusing on? Um, Whereas, you know, you go to Google as a PM, you go to Microsoft as a PM, Every place you go is a slightly different flavor of need has been my experience. Yeah, and the the scope of the job is different too because
0: being at Microsoft, being a program manager and then moving to a product manager, it almost feels like the, the constraints are slightly different and they jump between companies and sometimes they're kind of mapping one-to-one and sometimes they don't. And this is where talking to somebody who has experience at Google as a product person, they're going to give you a completely different perspective than talking to somebody who is a PM at, I don't know, Twitter or Meta or any other company.
1: Absolutely. And and that, you know, that I think there's also kind of you know, there's a phenomenon of of contagion there as well. And and so, you know, coming back to a Twitter example, when I joined Twitter in early 2010, you know, one in three people at the company were ex-Google people. And so you know it had the contagion of Google, you know, and Twitter eventually adopted OKRs, and you know it had you know a similar styling of, of PM and a similar you know kind of approach to how it was doing things, and you know it felt very familiar as a company, if, if much much smaller. Um, and I and so I think I think that you're right um, that um, you know there's. It, it may look on paper like there, there's a mapping from one-to-one from you know PM at this company to PM at, at that company, and it's not often the case. But it, I, I found it to be often the case that there's, there's certainly kind of there's echoes of PM at other organizations. And so, you know, I have never worked at Facebook, but I, I had lunch today with someone who used to work at Facebook. They're at Google now. Um and, you know, their comment was, well, you know, so many people that are, who are at Facebook, you know, have been at Google in the past. And there, there is a kind of, you know, a cross contagion effect going on both culturally, um, you know, in terms of the, the approach to business. Um, and certainly, you know, in terms of things like role definition, lettering and and so on. It's, uh, it's a fascinating industry. Coming from Amazon,
0: my first thing that I started doing just kind of non-intentionally was like, where's the PRFAQ for that? <laughs> Where's that six page document for that? And you're like, yeah, we don't do that here. Like, oh, oh, yeah, right. right. We, uh, we don't. I get it. But right. if you have a number of people, I would imagine that we're similar in those approaches. And like you said, you know, you have folks from Google that all went through the same experience. Mm-hmm. Then it's easier to push for that kind of cultural contagion, as you describe it, because you have all these people that do it
1: this way. We should probably do it this way, too. Why not? Right, no, it's it's true. Um, on the other hand, there's also the kind of you know the, the flip side of that effect, which is you know people people arriving, you know, and I say this as ex Google, people arriving from Google and say, well, the way Google does it is X, and you know, as if that is the the only and standard and right way to do things, and, and of course it's not. Um, and there are other approaches, and they're you know uh, arguably better in many ways. Um, I mean, I think, I mean, ultimately, I mean, PR FAQ, I really love as an approach. Um, I mean, ultimately though, I'm a you know, I think of myself as a pragmatist, not a dogmatist, right? And so I think PRFAQ is a tool to get a job done. And the job is setting expectations, aligning around a, a common vision, um, you know, teasing out disconnects as early in the process by, by writing things down and inviting people to disagree with it and query parts and push on parts. And I think, you know, at Amazon, that, that takes the form of the PRFAQ I think every company, with its you know, with its stuff together, has some form of you know, what is the what is the artifact or what is the vehicle via which we articulate our vision, you know, talk about our immediate goals, um, you know, frame the product in, in customers and, and the press's eyes, um, and also surface disconnects early on in the life cycle. I mean, I think every company has some way of doing that. I do admire Amazon's PRFAQ as, as a tool, but it is ultimately a tool to do the job. And there, there's other ways of getting that same job done.
0: I think there's a certain degree of that intersection between what you're describing as the pragmatism and dogmatism. Because even at Amazon, like PRFAQ, fantastic tool, but I just remember just the grueling... You know, we'll have to read every single word and like you can you cannot use the word many because you have to be precise. And then you're just like, and th- these are like look, we get it. It's a it's an implementation detail, right? Like it's not right, necessarily right. like I, I need to now get the perfect, you know, uh it's like a, a narrative, like I'm a writer, which hey, it brings a lot of clarity of thought, it brings a mm-hmm. lot of kind of intentionality to that process, but also sometimes it felt like but that's not the point right like we have a product to ship instead we're reviewing six pages for you know a month uh which just again is different it's a different culture
1: it's it's true and i th- and i think you know i lose patience with these things wh- when they when they become dogmatic and, and when the, the the you know the uh, the pragmatic value of a thing has been exhausted and we, we've gone into the realm of dogma but i i think you know and one one of the One of the commonest failure modes, I think, of of product initiatives is, you know, um, different expectations or different conceptions of things, uh, you know, living undetected in people's heads, you know, and so if we're initiating, hey, we're going to do, you know, Project X, you know, establishing as early as possible um, a completely, you know, a universal um, and common understanding of what Project X is and isn't, I think is really important because I have certainly seen you know, the scenario where you don't do a good job of that and you're about to ship 1.0 and two weeks before you ship, somebody says, wait, wait, I I thought feature, you know, feature B was in there. And someone else was like, no, 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 that's going to be a fast follow release. And someone pipes up, well, I have a customer depending on that. But I thought the philosophy of the product was X. And these disconnects can can really ruin projects. Um, And I've certainly seen it as you know, the, the risk you're continually running when you have more than one person working on something is that what I have in my head is different from what you have in your head in some subtle way. And, in, in, you know, in many cases, maybe that small difference, you know, hey, it'll all come out in the wash, it won't make any difference at the end of the day. In some cases, it can be catastrophic. Like if, if I have in my head something that's different from what my boss has in his head or, you know, if I as a PM have something slightly different from my engineer or design counterparts have in their head, that can be really damaging to a product initiative. And so I think there is a, a, a huge amount of value in having that exercise of level setting up front. And the best way I, I've seen for that to be done is in writing. I've never seen a better way for that to be done. Write down, like you say, it really drives clarity of thought. It, it really shows up, you know, where, where is a PM? Where are the gaps in my thinking? Where have I not thought this through enough? Where do I know myself that this part of the document is weak in the way it lays out the argument or whatever it is? But also, if, if I write this thing up and I share it out with as many people as possible and invite them to say, where have I not thought things through? Where do you disagree with what I wrote? Where have I gotten the wrong idea? Where are we not on the same page? And let's dive into those and resolve those as quickly as possible because you can really suck the risk out of a project by trying to front load um, that process of resolving these disconnects.
0: That's also why I try to push back on meetings and instead let's write documents because, man, it's it's so hard to get to the truth in a meeting because it's always that kind of tension between somebody has to say something because you're in a meeting versus let me actually noodle on this, think through the problem, give you my concrete feedback, and tell you, have you considered this other thing? Because on the spot, it's very hard to
1: come up with those things. Right, absolutely. And you must have seen this as well where... You know, four people can leave the same meeting with, like, between them, six different ideas about what's going to happen next, right? And it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's no good. So I, you know, and I, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that the meetings are useless as a, as you know, as, as a business business artifact, but I, I think that there is there's a lot to be said for, for writing things down. And I think, I mean, it's interesting, as you know, I I joined Microsoft early 2019. Um, to, to lead a team there, um, and I was the pretty much the only remote worker. Everyone else is in Redmond, in HQ. I'm here in Boulder, Colorado. Um, and, you know, a year later, the pandemic, hit, and suddenly, um, you know, there were a lot of work practices being adopted to support remote work, which are actually just work best practices. They're nothing to do with remote work. They're just like, you know, they're just being adopted late. Things like, you know, hey, Let's be conscious of people's time zones. Let's, um, you know, let's write things down. Let's allow people to work on things asynchronously together. Let's, um, you know, make sure that, you know, people are giving the, given the opportunity to speak up in meetings or, or someone who, you know, who wants to review a document and contribute to an idea. Maybe they don't feel comfortable speaking up or maybe English isn't their first language, but they can contribute in the form of dot comments or you know, taking the time and asynchronously working on a on a shared artifact, um, and I think that many of these practices that which we're seeing now come into to you know come into teams to support the the fact that here we are all in our in our separate rooms working on the same thing remotely. These are, aren't just best practices for remote work; they're best practices for work. It, it seems to me.
0: And speaking of these practices, you have. Put together a document that at some point also inspired me to put the same document, which was called Working with Isaac. Yeah. Tell me more about that. What what kind of made you create this personal README, if you will?
1: Dang, that's so there's a story behind this. So I um, So I wrote it when I when I was at Google, um, and um, Part of part of the document, I think that the last part of this document is kind of what I value at, at work, and it has a list of, of things which which I think are important. And part of the motivation for this document was realizing that not everyone has the same work values, and actually that's okay, um, that's to be expected. But I guess somehow it hadn't really occurred to me that I might end up working for people or with people who you value different things or prioritize different behaviors. Um, and I found myself working for such a person at Google. Um, and I found it very, very difficult to to get on with this person. I, I struggled for a long time with this, with this person as, as a manager. How was I not establishing a rapport? How was I not able to, you know, kind of work easily with this person? It was a very unfamiliar experience for me. And after a while, it, it probably took me a few, you know, a few quarters. But, but after a while, I realized, ah, I had this epiphany. It's not that, like, I'm a bad person and, and this person's better than me, or it's not that they're a bad person and I'm good and their right way is wrong and I'm right. It's simply that we had a different set of values and priorities, and it caused me at that time to realize I'd never written mine down. Um, and so I wrote mine down and ended up writing a thing at the time I was hiring and, and building a PM team, um, and so I wanted a. I I thought it would be useful to have an architect uh, – sorry, not an architect, an artifact um, – which kind of provided some sort of readme to, to me um, as a manager, as, as a leader, as, as a worker um, and help people to understand where I was coming from and the things that I valued, the things I thought were important, um, how I approach my work. So I, I wrote this document. I shared it with my team. I shared it with people who were considering jo- joining my team. A number of people at Google saw this document, and you know it's on GitHub, so they forked it and made their own versions. There are other versions. I think, in fact, if you search on Google for manager README, it's it's a thing. There's a phenomenon. There's a site for them and everything, and lots of different approaches to it. But I found it useful for me to write down. Um, I've been told by others that they found it useful in terms of you know how to approach me as, as someone to work with. Um, but the it was particularly gratifying for me when people started to to fork it and take it and make it their own. So you did one, you know, a colleague we have in common, Elena, Elena Salex did one herself. A number of people have have done others as well, and it's uh, that was a, a really gratifying for me to see it be useful for people to the extent that they wanted to make their own and benefit, you know, personally from from the utility of having one of these things. Um, it surprised me to be honest. When I wrote it, I didn't expect it to become much, but it surprised me to to get so much good feedback on it and have people adopting similar things.
0: It's an extremely useful artifact. I'll put it this way. Even when I came to Netlify, one of the first things that I did uh, was share one of these documents with one of the people that I work with. And to my surprise, they shared the exact same thing with me from their side. And I was like, wait, you did this too? Like, it, it's amazing because you read that and you know, okay, here's what this person thinks about when they work with me, when they work with their team, here's what they're, You know, even perception, you know, some folks have, you know, I work through the day and I will respond to your emails at like odd hours. That's fine. You don't need to have the pressure to respond. Just verbalizing that is so important because then you're like, oh, I get it that they don't expect me to do X, Y and Z. And I they have the same
1: expectation of me. Absolutely. I think that, that, like you say, level setting of expectations, and again, it, it just comes to that, um, it comes back to that, that notion that, you know, what lives in your head is different from what lives in my head. And I'm kind of, you know, having some some writing that we can both look at, which is a, a crystallization of, you know, agreement or a set of expectations or, you know, some kind of, you know, operating principles that we can share between us um, is, is really valuable just for just from the perspective of clarity.
0: So, so valuable. So, Isaac, if you look back at your career and everything that you've done, what's one piece of, let's call it unconventional advice that you would like to share with folks listening to this that is, the way I frame it usually is that it's not something that you'd read on a blog post because not a lot of people talk about or maybe it's that common. What would that be?
1: I come back to the to, to where we started about problem management and and encouraging people in product positions to think hard about what the problem domain is and think hard about how their product maps into it. Um, I I found that personally, just an incredibly instructive and useful and practical technique for having new thoughts about your product um, and being able to being able to generate new ideas within the problem domain which then you can translate into the product domain and, and go build um, and so although we talked about it before and so it, it's you know it's not new here I think that for me that that realization that the, the problem and the product are two separate things um, and you know great products have you know really wonderful mapping onto the problem domain um, they are ultimately two things and you've got to think about them separately and it was it was useful for me as a, as a product manager it was very useful for me as as a manager of product managers um, you know i had i had a manager at google who you know who came to me and said well look you know you're you're a senior product manager you're experienced and so you know you, you can take on a lot of scope so i'm going to give you these 17 things to look after and they were they were 17 very unconnected things they were all over the place in the in the problem domain and um, not joined together each occupying their own island and collectively, that you know, the size of these things was appropriate in terms of a scope, but the fact that they weren't connected together made, made them completely untractable. And so I said, you know, I, I can't take on all these different connected things. If you gave me the same number of things that the same size, but they were all adjacent in the problem domain, sure, I got it. That every day, give me that. Um, but but realizing that, you know, again, coming back to thinking in, in terms of problem space. The connectedness of things and the the adjacencies of things in the problem space make them that much easier to, to reason about. And when I was asked to reason about and manage a whole range of things that were unconnected in the problem domain, it became impossible for me to do. Um, and so I think... My my unconventional or, or maybe conventional, but slightly boring advice is, is think think about problem and product differently. Um, product is, is is one attempt to, to solve a particular problem. Um, there are many different ways you could solve that problem. There may even be ways to avoid the problem entirely without product uh, or without technology. It may be that, hey, we can solve this problem with better documentation. We can solve this problem with better process. We may not need to build anything. Um, and so thinking hard about the problems that you're solving, and what tools you're going to bring to bear on that problem whether they be process or operations or technology um, or documentation or training or you know reinventing the, the problem itself
0: i think this is great advice i think it's very unconventional because not a lot of folks focus on the problem and it's all often like we talked about it's folks start with technology and this is a cool thing i'll go find customers instead of why is that important so this very is great
1: true. very true Isaac, where can folks find you online if they want to follow you? And uh, you, you know, know the in- the best place to find me is on Twitter. I'm, I'm on Twitter all day. I'm Isaac H. That's I S A A C H um, is my username on Twitter. Or you can just uh, you can just Google for me and find me there. Um, yeah, I, I Twitter is you know. Uh, Twitter is one of my favourite products. To be absolutely honest with you, it has a ton of problems. Um, there are many ways in which it could be improved, but it's it's literally changed my life. I've made friends on Twitter. I found jobs on Twitter. Um, the best job I ever had, I think, was the five years I spent at Twitter, um, working at the company. Um, and it was interesting, you know, even you know over the last twelve years to see you know Twitter the team, Twitter the company, and Twitter the product, which you know at the beginning were all one thing, it went their separate ways. Um, I'm rambling now. You definitely ought to cut this stuff out. Um, Absolutely
0: not. This is fantastic. I love that. Find me on Twitter at
1: Isaac H. Isaac
0: H, a must follow. Isaac, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate you having
1: me.